Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Super excited to be talking about reimagining education. We have Mario Gaviotti joining us on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Super excited for this episode. Excited to be here. For those that don't know Mario's background, Mario Gaviotti holds degrees in cognitive science and neurobiology from Occidental College, marine biodiversity and conservation from Scripps Institution of Oceanography and Conservation Policy from UC San Diego. He also serves as board chair for Counterculture Labs in Oakland and the Young President's Organization Next Generation Leadership Program in San Francisco. He has spent years honing his skills as an experienced designer and educator to create positive learning environments for almost anyone. And you can find the links in the bio below, mariogabiati.com, as well as counterculturelabs.org and circuitlaunch.com. All right. Mario, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Um, <clears throat> I think there can be some pretty concerning developments uh, in the world today, but it's one of the reasons why I really like working in education. Um, I get to see, I was just at a Hack the Future event a few months ago in Lafayette, and we had like a nine-year-old kid that had spent an entire you know, few months building this whole um, Minecraft uh, world and you know was up on stage talking cogently about what he did and all these different features and he was really mad that he didn't you know get the bats or something right and I'm thinking like man this kid is already a better uh, programmer than I'll ever be and he's nine years old and he's up on stage talking about this stuff with you know great presence and stage presence and stuff so I get to see inspiring stuff like that all the time and it really kind of gives me hope for us being able to change stuff for the positive as we go forward. And so then the reimagining the education experiences for young people is, you'd say, the, one of the most important pillars of being able to have a positive trajectory. Um, I mean, I think you can change anybody's relationship with education and learning anytime. So I don't think you have to necessarily focus on kids. But, um, you know, my education philosophy has kind of grown out of my relationship with education when I was growing up and I was a really smart kid but didn't always get along with the way that people wanted to learn in a classroom environment and so I had a lot of clashes with my teachers I had a lot of teachers telling my parents that I was like special needs and my parents were like absolutely not and would get me IQ tested and there would be a big fight about it so I saw and I felt a lot of shame about that too because I just wasn't you know being a good student or, or something. And I think it's just everybody's got a different personality. And if I had had access to some of the experiences that I try to bring to people today, I might have had a very different relationship with education as I grew older. And um, not that I'm sad about where I'm at. I mean, I think that I'm doing really great work. But I would like to see more young people have a better experience trying to find their passion and kind of have a great relationship with learning throughout their entire lives and not just think about getting through school. I mean, I remember so much about like, as soon as I graduate, you know, and that's just a weird phrase to me now because now that I'm in the real world, I'm like, shoot, school was great. Why couldn't we stay there forever? And I'd love people mm. to have more of a philosophy of lifelong learning mm -hmm. and use time in school as a time to hone how you are going to be learning for the rest of your life as opposed to trying to get all your information so that you can be immediately packaged into something successful as soon as you leave college. Because I think that's the second pitfall people, you know, have gone through all this training and everybody in college says like, okay, once you gra graduate college, you're, you know, gonna be successful now. And that's just not the case for most people. And that can be a really tragic, difficult, emotional situation to get people out of as they grow older and try to find themselves again. So. I love the focus on finding purpose, <clears throat> one's purpose in the world, and that can be from, like you said, this, these experiences of reimagining education can be from anywhere from children all the way to adults and having a new take on, on their own education, their own ways for learning, have it be hands-on, have it be things that stick, that expand their awareness to new ways of thinking uh, about how intertwined everything is in our world and how important it is to work together, these types of things. That's great. Mario, let's do your journey. Okay, so you were telling me earlier, you're fourth generation Italian, born in San Mateo. Um, and then who were you growing up? Who was your family? How did you guys get interested in food and culture and experiences? 
Um, so I had an interesting situation. My dad's family has been in the Bay Area for, uh, he's, he was third generation. Um, and so my grandparents were born in San Francisco and grew up, and actually my grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side grew up a couple houses away from each other when they were little and didn't end up meeting until their 20s, but that was always kind of a big story they liked to bat around. Yeah. Um, and so we were not only, you know, it's like deep Italian culture and so, um, my great-grandfather moved over here from Italy and was a butcher and started a salami company. And then uh, that was shut down in World War II because of the rationing. And my grandfather started it back up um, and became Gallo Salami, which is a big salami company. Um, and then my dad, when he was coming into his own professionally, moved from being management at Gallo Salami into Adele's Sausage, which is a pretty famous, it's like the largest gourmet um, sausage company in the US. Um, he recently sold that to Tyson, I think. Um, and um, where were we going with that? Um, the story is already crazy. Oh, yeah. so anyway, so, so <laughs> anyway, there's just a long history of just like generations of food people on my dad's side in the Bay Area. And uh, on my mom's side, my mom's from Ohio, and her dad was a lifelong sales, beer salesman for Pabst Blue Ribbon. And so they're eating like microwaved string bean casserole and you know, just like the worst. And so her idea of like gourmet food was pretty different than my dad's family's um, impression of what gourmet food was. So I was kind of growing up in this place where I not only got like the most intensive food education from these Italians that I was growing up with, um, but I was immediately juxtapositioning that with what my mother had learned from her family. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to like crap on Midwestern cuisine or anything like that, but uh, there's a lot of food culture that's been lost when, you know, cultures move over. I mean, I think her background was English and German. Um, and after a few generations of living in Ohio, that just kind of got washed out into stuff that just wasn't super tasty, was really fatty, a little too salty. Um, and then when I came from my background with the Italian food, it just, you know, was never that exciting. Um, so I always kind of was very aware of the fact that there was, there's, there's the ability to lose your food culture if you're not constantly preserving it, talking about it, caring about it, having yeah. arguments about it. Um, <laughs> and I got that from the Italian side of my family. So uh, from a very early age, I kind of like, we all really cared about food. We competed about food, you know, who's the best cook. Um, when we were young kids and we were always trying to like take over in the kitchen and like yeah. show up our parents. Show up the parents, um, yeah. And even now, like for Thanksgiving, my mom and dad will have like a turkey cook off and they'll make each a turkey and they try to, you know, we make everybody evaluate who had the, who best, one. the best one, uh, which, you know, <laughs> can, can be good and bad That's at great. different times. But I think just seeing the fact that, you know, how important food culture is. And I think if you're just steeped in it, you don't always recognize that that it can be missing in other places. Yeah. And I think that I could I could see that and that was important and it made me really cherish it and want to preserve it. Yeah, food culture and food preservation, uh, this is so important, especially from looking back in time at all the different cultures on the planet and how they were able to preserve their different ways of, of cooking and harvesting food and sharing it with other people, having these cook-offs, making it part of culture to make it fun, um, and to be connected to our sources of food versus um, being just walking into the stores and just not being connected whatsoever. Well, and also that, I mean, my, my grandfather and father were into making preserved meats, which is a science. So my dad's a food scientist. My grandfather, you know, was definitely dabbling. I don't think he was a professional or an edu you know, educated in that way. But um, you know, having to understand that technology of meat preservation, like we were talking before, I mean, it's a technology to be able to take something that you, know, you kill a big animal and you gotta make that meat last for up to a year using yeah. just salt and proper handling techniques. I mean, that's an amazing technology. So yeah. um, I was aware from a really young age that not only could you eat this stuff, but there's science in there. Um, and I got that from my dad in a big way because he was a big yeah. part of like trying to take the old world food tactics. Um, he was part of the technology. So now you get those, those uh, pillow packs where there's air inside instead of it being just vacuum sealed. Mm. So that's a proprietary gas technology that keeps the, um, the bacteria from growing in there. My dad helped develop that technology. Whoa. So it was kind of neat to see like the food science really applied. Um, and that's given me a really great 
kind of base for now what I do, which is trying to use my passion for food and turn it into a way to teach people about microbiology. Yep. So. Yep. My gosh, when you're explaining this to me a little bit ago too, it was just like such an aha moment that if you could only uh, st store for a couple of days after um, cooking something uh, to be able, especially like a meat, to be able to figure out that um, preserving it with salt can for up to a year help you be able to revisit that source of food. I mean, that was a massive discovery. And then there were so many other uh, ways of preservation techniques, um, other fermentations and other styles of, of preservation. Um, so huge. I love the, the big, the deep time perspective on, on how these things came, well, came up. This is a funny thing. I was talking to some people about, um, Game of Thrones. So this is this whole area where you're supposed to have like these giant long winters and, you know, and I'm going like agriculture would have been completely insane. Why isn't everybody eating pickles all the time? Yeah, because yeah. if you have some like seven year winter, your entire like life would be about preserving food, food yeah, you know, yeah. and I'm seeing them eat fresh vegetables all the time. And I'm like, this is crap because yeah. <laughs> yeah. you can't have, I mean, you know, armies march on their stomachs is a famous line, you know, march on so their stomachs. if you can't yeah. feed, feed your people, you know, you have a big problem on your hands. So these kind yeah. of food techniques, people can talk about like, oh, food isn't that important or something, but you do it three or four times a day. Yeah. And the if you don't know anything about your food, I mean, that, this seems like a nightmare to me. Yes. If I'm going to be interacting with something on a yes. daily basis, multiple times, times and it, a day, it and touches on my health, health, on my well-being, on my social relationships. This is a big thing that I talk about when I do my classes at the Culinary Institute, because these are these young chefs and, you know, they're going into this culinary industry and it's very difficult and there's a lot of late hours and people are, you know, doing these different things. But if you really think about the job that they're doing, they're bringing people around a table. And if you can tell a story with that food about your cultural past or, you know, some path that you've been on through these foods that you're giving to people, I mean, giving someone a food with a really good story, that's the difference between Chez Panisse and, you know, Domino's. So if you can really get people to focus on that. I mean, I think it's a really important aspect. You know, people don't always know the power that a chef has to get people, you know, that don't agree with each other to sit down and have a great meal. And that can great really open bread. up some doors. So Yeah. 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 Wow. And and it's one of those things like you said that happens three times a day <clears throat> nowadays and that even our sources of water are so obfuscated, right? We're not, where our hands aren't in the soil, growing the food in the gardens. These are very pressing things that we need to challenge our, our society on, is that uh, by moving away so many of the means of understanding where our water, our food, our electricity, all these things come from, that uh, it, is it actually making it easier for us to, to have a more uh, connected, uh, life with mother nature with each other um, or is it just uh, set offsetting it to someone else to handle while we do things that we deem as productive but disconnecting from potentially each other and our planet so this is one yeah I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing that up that's a huge one then also then but then how did it go from um, the how did the interest and in peak in the cognitive science neurobio marine bio conservation, conservation policy, how did all these things uh, creep into life? These are huge fields. Um, so I think when I was going to college, I mean, I was always really interested in science. So um, I loved biochemistry, um, tons of memorization in biochemistry. And um, <clears throat> I'm not a super meticulous person when it comes to crazy details and memorization. I'm much more about you know, if I can build a system or if I can conceptualize how to do something so that, you know, I'll be most likely to get the right answer. Those are the things I'm really interested in. You know, knowing the exact name of everything all the time is something that I find happens kind of accidentally for me after I'm very familiar with the material. Um, so when I got into to, um, neurobiology and stuff, it was kind of because I didn't have the GPA to stay in biochemistry. Um, but I was still really interested in the body and chemistry and how the mind works and things like that. So, and I really had a great linguistics teacher. A lot of the choices that I made in my early academic history was just trying to follow educators that I liked um, more than the subject matter necessarily because I found that if I had a really good teacher, I just liked that, in, that, that subject matter. 
um, even if I knew that I loved the subject matter, but I had a crappy teacher, I would just have a much better experience in place where the educator really spoke to me. So um, that was kind of how I felt. I, I uh, had a really good linguistics teacher, and she kind of gave me the idea that I could take a bunch of her classes and a bunch of these computer science classes that I like and a bunch of neurobiology and then it could be cognitive science. So I was like, that works great. Um, but the whole time I had a job on campus as a diver working for this Mantuna research group, nice. which is a really cool thing about Occidental College. They're the only uh, undergraduate institution that has a graduate level research facility that you know uses grants and does actual research on, on campus. So yeah. <clears throat> I was really into diving and stuff like that. So I would go out there with them because we could also go lobster diving. Um, but we were also doing benthic surveys by the Chevron plant and diving out at the uh, Twin Harbors uh, white sea bass pens. They were doing a program for um, evaluating the environmental impact of fish farming in nearshore environments. So we would dive down there and take a bunch of benthic samples and I would go back into the lab and pick out all the living stuff and quantify it and count it and things like that. So. Um, that was just kind of a real granular. I got to do the fun stuff, which is go out and dive, but then I got to be in a lab environment a lot. And I kind of liked it. It's like independent, there's a little bit of thinking, somebody teaches you, uh, you know, a task and then you repeat it. But at every stage you're learning about something and you get to observe stuff about the, the in, environmental world and we were really discovering new things so it was cool to pick these little worms out of there and be like wow that's a really weird shape or you know this one took a really long time to die in the formaldehyde solution or something yeah, yeah. and so there was just a constant learning that was going on there so then once I got out of college I actually moved to China for a little while and um, did a language program there and then got a job with a seafood company that was trying to import uh, fish into China and made like a price map of all these different um, fish that were there because I could identify them biologically, but they had kind of different common names in a lot of these different towns. So um, that was a great opportunity for me to kind of go around and see a ton of like fish farming operations mm -hmm. and fish markets. And I um, region, or what was the other name? I'm, there's a big seafood conference uh, Seabold Seafood Conference that happens every year in Qingdao, China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was hired on to do a little research about different fish farming out there. And that kind of started a new chapter of my life because I'm seeing all these fish that are being produced for US markets in fish farms that maybe didn't have a whole lot of great uh, environmental controls. Maybe they were using um, chemicals they weren't supposed to be using and there's just no oversight. I mean, less than 1%. I mean, when I did my when I went to Scripps and started researching this professionally, less than 1% of the fish that we're importing is being inspected. And so people know that. And since it's so unlikely that you'll be caught, um, a lot of stuff that people are eating, and that's why that country of origin labeling was so important. Um, and fish farming, I always thought... like microplastics is the big thing, or what's the big thing in the Well, I'm not so worried about microplastics because I think we can eat, probably eat a lot of little tiny chunks of plastic and it's not going to give us cancer. but. You know, if we're medicating fish in, I mean, the, the big thing I was worried about were the salmon pens off of the coast of Chile. And at the time, um, I don't know exactly what the regulations are now, but it was like the Wild West when I was doing the research and they had these net pens. They would grow out these baby um, salmon, they would put them in these pens and then they would feed them all this feed. But they're so crammed, crammed in together thing that they're getting diseases. So they're medicating them with antibiotics and then they're using all these chemicals to keep them from getting f sick or to knock off the lice that would come and eat the fish because they're already like stressed so it's just like all the sea bugs get in there and want to get in there so now this kind of fish and, and they're harvesting and selling the fish before it had time to show the physical signs of disease mm. so we were taking fish fillets that were coming into like you know at the time like big retailers that you could buy your fish at and we were testing them and they had all these disease factors for uh, like salmon septicemia and these kind of like bacteriological eating wasting diseases and you know if you create a, a huge line of protein that's serving these kind of diseased meats to a population it's likely that at some point it'll make a jump and start becoming infectious for humans. So I saw that as a really big issue and I thought that there needed to be some kind of like pedigree system you could apply to fish. I mean, when I was going to these fancy restaurants in China, they would have a grouper 
that they would tell you its whole life history, its name, you know, where it was born, where it grew up, all, how it was treated in captivity. You'd get to look at them, and then you'd select one, and then they'd cook it for you and stuff. But they really cared. I mean, like, these, all wow. these documents were stamped, and this was because people knew that there was a problem with this stuff. And this is the real have, vigilance supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. And so Whoa. it would have been nice to have um, a system to deal with that, and I tried to develop something with... Um, Texas Instruments where we were using these little uh, radio frequency ID tags that are about the size of a grain of rice and you yeah. can actually inject them into the fish and then we could monitor them with computers and scanners throughout their entire life cycle and then you could get a fish fillet at the market and scan it with the QR code and it would give you all that information like where it was born and how long ago it was harvested and what the manufacturer was so that you could track hey I had a really good clean piece of fish or a good experience or I read a good thing about this one I'll select this guy even though it might all be under the same you know purveyor or something at least it gives you a little bit of information to make that choice but trying to sell that technology to a restaurant or market you know market chain they don't want that te technology because now all of a sudden it's even harder to source seafood I mean right now it's hard enough so the less information that people have, the better it is as far as just selling that protein out the door. But if you really care about what you're getting, it's extremely difficult to get a, store, a fish with a story behind it that makes sense and that's true and that is actually going to you know, represent something good for your body and good for the environment. And so it's a total tragedy. Now, I, like, I haven't been working in that area for a while, but it was enough fish information. Fish is just one of the examples yeah. like that. The, the and I don't eat a lot of seafood proximity. now because of that experience, which I... You know. That was disease was a big uh, a problem. We also have the same thing coming up in close proximity factory farming with cows, pigs, chickens. We have the same issues arising um, and we're uh, ethically finally growing up in biotechnologies, figuring out how to grow clean meat um, in bioreactors. And I think 50 years down the line, kids will say, I can't believe you're slaughtering billions of animals. And so that seems like our trajectory, hopefully, um, indistinguishable um, meats grown in bioreactors so versus slaughtering animals. I'm curious what your point of view is on this because I've, I'm super into the cell-based meats and um, I am really excited about this technology, but when I talk to people about how they're going to change their eating habits as they go forward with these new technologies. They're like, oh yeah, well, you know, when I'm having my ground beef or something, I'm going to like have this, you know, pea protein, or I'm going to have this impossible burger. But, you know, I'm still going to have a ribeye steak once in a while. Well, there's only like two or five ribeye steaks on a cow. Uh, or a steer or something, and the rest of it is other cuts of meat, and there's like hundreds of pounds of ground beef. So if we're now still growing the cattle because people want to have nice steaks once in a while as a, as a treat, that necessitates producing all of the other ground meats and stuff that are just in a much higher volume, but now nobody's eating that stuff. So, you know, are we really saving the environment? Because the other thing is there's a lot of land. Everyone talks about how much land in the U.S. is used for, for livestock and farming and stuff like that. But most of them are turning totally unarable land that we couldn't use for farming anyway into some viable food source, right? So you look at like Eritrea and stuff and they have these special gazelles that are out there eating this like totally desert vegetation and then they produce this like nice gazelle that you can shoot and eat and it sustains all these populations and stuff out there that they absolutely could not do with agriculture. So I really love the cell meats and I love the technology and I want them to be developed and stuff like that, but nobody's really answered the question of like, what are we gonna do about the fact that we have to majorly change our culture and make sure that like, nobody wants to even eat a steak? Because the second people wanna have a ribeye steak once in a while, we have the beef industry forever, you know? And Ooh, then what are you gonna yeah. do with all that yeah. meat, that but protein that's being supplemented by the cell meat? Think it's about like not, all the other stuff can, that we used to do You need to grow a, like ribeye steak. If you can grow a ribeye steak, all of our problems have been solved. But if you're only growing a, an equivalent for ground beef, I don't think that we've Oh yeah, the, cre it, the creativity is, is, is it's unbounded. It, there's so much to explore in it. Um, so there will be solutions, I think, for all of those examples. And also just looking back at all the things that we used to do that were archaic, um, and now just looking back and saying, I can't believe that we were doing that. I think that same thing's going to happen. Um, okay, but now let's, let's hit on, um, uh, on conservation policy. I wanna know about this. So what, what exactly 
were you doing in that field? Yeah, tell us about that. Um, so this is part of this great program at Scripps. Um, and Scripps is kind of a, uh, it was actually there before UC San Diego, but it's uh, an oceanographic institution. And they have historically been very involved in oil and gas exploration, and they do a lot of the technology needed to do like deep sea drilling and stuff like that. Um, but there's a lot of people doing like really cutting edge coral reef research and things like that. And um, they created a program, uh, it was the second class I think, so they started maybe like 2008. Um, and it's a marine biodiversity and conservation policy program. And the idea is that you take people who have had some experience in the marine world to some extent, so people that are divers that work for Fish and Game, or the Coastal Commission, or um, people like me. I was working in uh, zoos and aquariums at the time. And they bring them in and they give them a really comprehensive um, education on what's going on in the world, what are the different systems, what are the different research that's going on at Scripps and other institutions that are, you know, like what are the unanswered questions about the ocean and our Huge. relationship with the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then because California has a lot of really unique legislation, um, we have like uh, the California, it's called CEQA, um, Environmental Quality Act. Um, which is a really huge piece of legislation that gives uh, California pretty unprecedented control of its local environment. And so um, governmental policies like that have allowed us to do, uh, California coast has about 16% of it, which is uh, protected, marine protected areas, mm. um, which is about the same physical amount of land mass as the Great Barrier Reef has set aside for, um, for conservation, so just sixteen percent. Well, I mean, just sixteen percent. Our idea, I mean, that what a lot of scientists are saying now is, if we can set aside, is it twenty percent of the oceans, um, that we'll be able to fish the rest of the ocean as much as we want, and we won't be able to deplete it because we'll have identified the most productive areas of the ocean and left them alone and let them really you know, thrive. Stuff like that, yeah. And yeah. Um, Cal California's been a leader in this, but um, now California, because we've been such a leader in this, we're going to places like Hawaii that actually don't have as good a policy as that. And we're taking our experiences from conservation efforts in California, and we're taking those people and that technology, and we're going to um, Hawaii, and we're using those technologies. They have a new thing, it's a sea dart. And it can go down because there's lots of technologies like rovers and stuff that'll survey Those on a flat so cool. area, yeah. but these ones do vertical. Yeah. So and it's super easy, and we're doing citizen science stuff with it. You can have it, um, uh, you know, just you know, kids can take one of these cheap things out and drop it down, and and create really great necessary data that we haven't had before. Um, so all these kinds of things are coming together, and um, what you really realize is that these governmental policies are are very very important. Because without them, it, it doesn't give anybody the ability to make a change. Um, you kind of have to give people the impression that we care about stuff. And that's really what government's for. Because most people are out there trying to fight for their day-to-day -day life. So they don't really have a chance to think about, like, well, what's a 50-year plan? What's a 100-year plan? And that's totally. really what the government's supposed to be for. Yeah. And if the government just comes out and says, hey, we want to value this resource, we're going to put you know, our resources behind identifying and protecting these things, that gives permission to a lot of these groups to say, okay, let's invest in developing these technologies to figure those questions out. Let's pay people to do the work, you know. And what we're finding is that we've taken areas, I mean, like, you know, the California coast has always been a really productive area to fish, but when we set aside these marine protected areas and people come, they d identify everywhere right around the marine protected area and they're getting better fish catches than they were 30, 50 years ago. So um, it's a really powerful model, and I think that policy is right at the center of that. And so getting an education from Scripps and UC San Diego on the different kinds of policy that's going on out there, it gives you, you know, politics is sort of a dirty thing these days, and it's really, you know, what we're looking at is all of these political opinions and, and, and stances that maybe don't give us an accurate picture of what is happening on a daily basis and there's so much good stuff going on in politics right now and there's so many people that care and you know I'm not a big fan of of our president at the moment but um, he has had 
an effect on people of really pissing them off and getting them involved in politics. And I remember as a young person, I was completely checked out of politics, didn't want to vote or anything. And now I am like an evangelist for trying to get involved in politics because it's the only thing that's going to give us a chance on a long enough time scale to really make some huge improvements in our life. When you think about the things that are affecting our lives now, I mean, they came out of big government programs like the space program or, you know, the New Deal or, you know, just things where we like, let's put our resources behind experimenting in this area. And it's exploded out onto all these new things. You know, I wish it wasn't oil, oil and gas exploration right now, but um, what you're saying about conservation policy is massive. Um, and also, it actually ties me into this next part that I want to talk to you about, which is about you know, stories shaping everything, um, the importance of reimagining education broadly. Um, if you think about it, conservation policy, if you think about it, environment, just connection to nature, connection to what sustains us, our disconnection from that is in many ways the reason why we have so many of these issues in our world. Do you feel as though, so the workshops obviously that you're, that you're teaching people about tie them directly back into that source from where we all originate from. Do you feel like that is the main central reason why we're so, have so many of the issues going on in our world? Um, I mean, <laughs> to answer the question, it's very multifaceted. I think I approach it from an educational angle because I think that, you know, if you want to have a real appreciation for the, for the natural world, um, you know, like growing something you can eat is a pretty great first experience. And I think that that can give people kind of the emotional buy-in to want to care more. Um, I think the disconnection really gives us emotional distance. And it's that emotional distance that allows us to make decisions that ultimately are really terrible. Um, so I think that um, there's, there's a, I think we've kind of overemphasized a lot of the, the, I don't know, measurable aspects of, you know, education and politics and things like that. And we maybe have underemphasized or like underappreciated how important, you know, like feelings and relationships are in these kinds of environments. So I try to do, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at engaging people on an intellectual level or an education level. So that's kind of the power I like to exert on people by trying to take a little bit of the things I'm passionate about and kind of infecting you with that and making you want to ask questions. Um, but there's so many other things that are a part of trying to like answer why people feel disconnected and want to escape. I mean, and, and a lot of it is, I mean, there's like monetary policy stuff. There's, you know, and like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to be mm -hmm. a strong force in that area. So I think to some extent, we all have to realize like we only can do our little part. And, but doing that part is really important. You know, you're so doing a lot of infecting. I want to right import, yeah, and I want to empower people because I mean, I think of all the people that we're disenfranchising by giving them educational environments where they feel like stupid and turned off, which is like every school I go to. Um, you know, we have a lot of like expectations. I mean, there's this fear that parents have right now about their kids being successful, and then it makes their relationship with their kids sometimes like very adversarial around education and. That's something that I have to... They have to be following their purpose. Yeah. yeah, and so I have to kind of try to help people find something they're excited about and then use that, like, here, yes. you, can, you can accomplish this same thing that is going to make them feel like, oh, he's, like, learning or she's really interested in this but, thing. But coupled she's doing with okay. the purpose, they need to also be connected to what actually sustains them, the planet. So they have to have that realization fully embodied into them as they carry out their purpose in the world. They should love it. They should, they love, should it. love it. You know? should and if you love it, then together. you can stick with it. I think a lot of people are trying to force themselves to do something they don't really love. I mean, if you look at my work history, I mean, it's like I was always doing stuff I didn't love. And when I hit on something that I felt a real connection with, I was like, great, I don't even care if I don't get paid any money, I'm gonna do this until I figure out a way to make it work because, you know, this is something that inspires me to do it. And I think that's the way that you really change people, you know, you can't, you can't not believe in your 
what you're selling and have any purchase with people, you know? You're infecting people with reimagining education and you're doing it in so many different ways. Workshops, fun dinners, joyful personal living spaces. We're talking like all these cool images that we have to, you're teaching beekeeping, um, nature tours, mushroom hunts, mushroom cultivation, hardware development, garden design, grow your own food. For kids too, little chefs, kid cultivators, pasta, fermentation classes, so many cool things, charcuterie. I mean, wow, like the list, because you, <laughs> by doing all of those things and by taking people into all these experiences, you are then connecting them to nature, to their food, to our interconnectedness. And so that slowly infects into people's education and want to get them to share it. Tell us about how this has been. This, how many years has this been happening? What have been some of your favorite parts about the, about the experiences? Yeah, so um, I was doing like corporate training stuff uh, about five years ago and wasn't really enjoying it. It was sort of educational, but it uh, wasn't really what I love to do. And I got involved with Counterculture Labs and they uh, were really encouraging me to teach some classes and just kind of like share my knowledge. Um, there's always a need for stuff like that down there. And um, I was like, hey, yeah, you know, it's an it's a inviting environment. I'll just like try to, you know, take something that I think I know a lot about and teach people about it. Um, and I would do like, you know, a marine biology class and like four people would show up. And then I did like a mushroom class and 40 people showed up. And I was like, well, I guess I'm a mushroom person now. No, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, as I kind of jumped around from thing to thing that I was that I was just interested in and it's a great way to learn you know if you want to learn something teach it it's like learning it twice it really gets that information in there and you know I would love to pick something new up and immediately flip it over and turn it into a class and yep um, over the course of three years I started noticing that um, I was just restricted, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff in this counterculture lab space, which is a great maker space, but it's um, a little cluttered and a little bit difficult, you know, especially if you're making food in there, it's not the best environment. So um, I found myself kind of looking, you know, people were asking me to do these other things that I didn't feel comfortable doing there. And that over time just kind of blossomed into offering all of these different private workshops and um, you know, I like to work with small groups because I think that kind of doing a group activity together is a very bonding experience. And yeah. so I can take something like, oh, a pasta making workshop. Like I do a mommy and me pasta making workshop and that thing gets emotional all the time yeah. because people are sitting around doing something with their hands. Their kids are always like engaged and quiet because they have something to play with. It's safe for them to put in their mouth and it's not going to be a big deal. And then the moms are chatting back and forth and it's like tears central. But uh -huh. it's great because it's a really like a supportive <laughs> environment everybody gets to learn something yeah. and everybody has a great time you know so I don't always look at these things as like a reason just to learn a thing I mean sometimes it's a reason just to get in a room with other people that have a similar desire to do something and creating a little space for community in there I love um, that. we do like I just started this new thing with uh, Lauren Tedeschi who is one of yeah, your recent interviewees yeah, yeah. yeah and she is like a 25 year a veteran of Novartis and is a mm -hmm. protein purification specialist, but she's also a fiber art uh, master who's like got all these different awards for doing this stuff. So I was like, great, let's teach a class. We'll make these science concepts and we'll teach people how to embroider them. And people are making these beautiful pieces of art and they're repping their nerd pride on their pants. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you want to memorize the chemical structure of psilocybin, needle pointed on a pair of pants for two and a half hours and I guarantee you'll you never forget. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I can take people <laughs> who are good. interested in art who never thought that they were interested in science and give them something super scientific to like maybe get invested in. You know, maybe, maybe they did a jellyfish and it was just that and whatever, but they still hung out in a science lab with a bunch of science people and that's still better than nothing. So I love doing that's the other thing that auger art thing um, that I think we'll get into more detail later but yeah. I mean it's a great engagement tool um, you know I want to take you know I only have the ability to take to give so many classes and at the end of the day I really want to take these concepts and this like love of learning and this engagement tool and bring it to as many people as possible and so doing things over the internet or you know it's not as good as creating community in person and coming and hanging out but not everybody has the ability to do that and maybe you need a little bit of time to get comfortable with it so I love the ability of someone being able to you know interact with the class in an electronic format until they feel like great you know what I feel comfortable enough I'm gonna come down and be a part of the community and that is the thing that changes lives 
It's really cool. I love that. It makes you feel so warm because you're right that when you can get people together with behind like a same cause of, of learning some process, being it together in a community there, um, uh, mommy and me, that's such a good for like pasta making or that's a, that's a great one. And then that being able to, um, you know, that also ties me into kind of what you were saying at first, where the child is then able to maybe, you know, take what they learned and then go and teach it right away. It, like take a stage and give a presentation about it. You know, these, this is how you really cultivate strong um, senses of, of learning. And kids are yeah. natural at this. I mean, some kids are shy, but a lot of kids, they don't know to be embarrassed yet. So if you can get them to talk about stuff that they love and they're passionate about when they're little, they'll keep that their whole lives. So I'm really... I mean, I love teaching kids. I mean, I love teaching everybody, but teaching kids can be a really great experience because if, if you can reach them, I mean, sometimes they're a little too, you know, off in their own world to really try to get what you're selling all the time. Um, but you can still give them a really positive learning environment. And as the other thing is like, teaching six or seven year olds is one thing, but I also interact with a lot of like high school students. And a lot of them will come to me and they like see the stuff that I'm doing and they're like, oh man, like I really wish I could do your stuff and you seem really impressive and I want to, you know, but I, I like live in a small town and I don't, you know, I'm not in the Bay Area and I can't do it. And I'm like, it like does not matter where you are. If you can really sit down and think about something that you love and want to do and really want to spend your time doing and then you find a group of people, I mean, it's never been easier. You get on the internet and like do a little research. You can probably find a group of people that you can interact with. And then even if you have to take a long drive or fly someplace, like go physically to a meeting that they have and interact with some people and find somebody else's project and volunteer to help. And if you can do those three things, if you can like figure out what you're passionate about, figure out a place to go and then physically go there and offer your help to somebody else, I guarantee you that's like a success, a, a really easy recipe for success for like getting involved in a community and giving yourself a pathway to like changing your life if yes. you feel stuck. Yes, um, yes. And that's advice that I wish someone had told me a long time ago because it's a simple recipe and anybody can apply it. It doesn't really matter what you're into, you just have to be passionate about it and you have to make the effort to go and like make a connection with another person in person. And if you can do that stuff, I mean, it's life changing. It's really powerful. Um, yep. and it inspires both people, you know, and even now, like I'm working on great stuff, but I need help all the time. And there's not that many people that have the courage to come down and be like, look, I don't know what I can contribute, but I really want to contribute and I'm really passionate about this stuff. What can I do? Yep. That's a really great starting point to go from as opposed to like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? You know, because you're not likely to find anybody who's going to take that and help you, you know, yep. but you can find someone that will help you as long as you have that common thread of both being really passionate about something. So, yes, you know, the first step is the hardest part, but it may also be the easiest, you know. Just what, what would you, what do you do until you're so hungry? You're like, why haven't I eaten in five hours? You know, it's like find the things that you're doing that, you know, really make you want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, love it. First, 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 first and second principles of connect to nature, understand our origins, connect to your purpose, identify uh, places to go to be able to um, fulfill your purpose more more easily with communities that are also doing it and let's let's also unpack the other ones here I mean now um, just in general it seems like um, um, using um, mycelium is becoming so popular now in everything uh, everything from structural materials to like leathers to um, I mean psybin being magic ones um, so so that's huge I mean taking people um, mushroom hunting um, having people uh, actually do cultivation with it teach us about that and also bees i mean bees is another massive one you know actually putting on a bee suit going out there to the farm seeing their importance in the ecosystems yeah tell us about these two um so i mean my, my beekeeping spiel is a little shorter so i guess i'll do that one first um i love to teach beekeeping just from this standpoint that it kind of ties in all the different things that i like to do um you know i love science and there's a ton of science going into researching what's going on with bees um, but there's also 
you know, they're hugely important in our food system, and you can't, you can't learn about bees and become a beekeeper without really taking a deep dive into our food preparation, our, our kind of just um, the industry around producing food for people. Um, because you learn all this stuff about how people are, you know, like what's in, like a lot of beekeepers are really proud about their honey. Um, and to tell you the truth, I mean, the honey that I take out of my hives is a completely different animal than the honey that I'm able to buy in a store. Um, and I think that there's just the realities of having to pump. I mean, there's a lot of inconsistencies with a natural product. So if you want to have a really consistent product, even if you're trying to do the best you can, I think sometimes you have to like thin it out or you know do something so that you can pump it industrially. That if you don't have to do any of that stuff, it becomes sort of a different product. So you know, I'm I'm sympathetic to some bee producers that are really you know like really trying to do the right thing with their honey, um, but. It's not something that's terribly difficult to do. It takes a little bit of a monetary investment, but it's something that will absolutely change your relationship with nature and your relationship with your food. And it can be a really fun community builder because it's a lot of work sometimes. So you kind of really get to get, there's always saying like, uh, get your kids into beekeeping and they'll never become drug addicts because they'll spend all their money on bees. <laughs> uh, so it's a really kind of catchy addiction that you can get because they're fascinating to watch. Um, and their, their lives are governed by these very rigid rules that you can take advantage of, like with using smoke or um, you know, using different queen hormones or something like that. You can completely control these organisms and it gives you a really great hands-on uh, kind of, I don't know, computer system or something of like, yeah. you know, what, what is mother nature on a granular level? It's a really great thing. But it's kind of unattainable for some people because you need to have like a lot of outdoor space and you, you know, can't be in an apartment and it takes several hundred dollars to get started. And so when people are really into beekeeping, I'm like, you should, you know, become a member of a local beekeeping organization and start there. <clears throat> the great thing about mushrooms is you don't have to start from anything. You can just literally walk around. I mean, I've found like coveted edible mushrooms at the Rock Ridge BART station. So you wow. can be in an urban environment and find stuff that's really fascinating. It is a, a treasure hunt that I am on all the time and I'm always happy. And kids love it. I mean, kids are even better mushroom hunters than adults because they're closer to the ground and they can see it at different <laughs> angles and stuff. So it's great to go with kids. Mushrooms don't run away from you. They're not typically poisonous by touching them. I mean, you could eat them and get sick, but you have to metabolize the mushroom to get sick. There's no amount of touching. I mean, maybe if you, there's a, you don't want to breathe a ton of spores, but if you're outside, it's never going to be a problem. So it's um, a really accessible type of science that you can do. And then these things have really unique chemistry. So some of them, you cut them in half and they start yellow and then they immediately start turning bright blue because of exposure to uh, oxygen. Yeah. Um, some of them will change color when you cook them or add acid or base. Uh, I use these mushrooms to make uh, color fast fabric dyes in one of my classes, um, which is a really fascinating thing. And it, you just take something you found on the ground and one of them you have to like do a fermentation process and then you put it in water and you boil your silk in there and it becomes this like really beautiful golden color. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it, we have a fascination with mushrooms right now because there's all these technologies and we've like applied the science a little bit and we're starting to find some of those technological benefits. But if you look at that with plants or something, it's the same trajectory, right? Like we get so many of our pharmaceuticals from the plant world. We get so many of our foods, so many of our packaging materials, you know, our paper bags are all from trees, our books and stuff like that. So I don't think necessarily mushrooms are that unique other than we just haven't explored them as much. And so when we really unpack the potential that they have, which might be just as much as all plants or all animals or something, I mean, they have properties of both in some cases. So it's amazing, you know, they may turn out to be even more versatile than totally. the plant world, but um, I kind of see it as being just like, you know, we're discovering what was there all the time. Yeah. And, you know, so there's, there's nothing new happening. It's been happening the whole time. I mean, one of the things that I love to talk about in my classes is the only reason we have fossil fuels on the earth is an evolutionary gap between when fungus figured out how to break down cellulose and when it figured out how to break down lignin, which is the different carbohydrate structure that makes hardwoods hard. Mm. And so the several hundred million year process that it took it to figure out how to eat that, that food source 
created this huge amassment of, of uh, material that then fermented and became our fossil fuels. But we're not making any more fossil fuels these days because it's all being recycled into our environment, um, which is a powerful thing. You know, we talk about like, you know, how how um, environments in the in the um, Sierras develop and there's these meadows that will open up out of, all of a sudden and it's these mushrooms that will go in there and infect the tree roots and start eating that wood and one of the byproducts of breaking down wood in their metabolic way is, is water. So they can take a whole stand of trees and basically turn it into a vernal pond. And if you know anything about biodiversity is it's the edges of different ecosystems that have the most biodiversity. So these organisms that can go in there and create a you know contained change of ecosystem and give you different types of ecosystems that are interspersed in one another that is the like spice that gives us all these different animals and it's these different habitats that really get specialization and you know it's this kind of constant game that's going on with these different animals that we get all these different pharmaceutical you know derivatives or foods or something else artistic things so i I love the, you know, applying this technology, but it's, the reason why I think it's so great as a teaching tool is it's so easy and so approachable and so cheap. Yep. You don't need any tools, you don't really need, I mean, don't start eating mushrooms until you've been doing it yeah, for a yeah. while, but you can go out there and look at them and get involved. I mean, mushrooms have a really cool community around them. There's a whole bunch of people that want to go out and party and, you know, talk about mushrooms on a scientific level, and then they want to go drink a bunch of whiskey and talk about art or music, you know? So it's a really cool group of people to get involved with, and it's, you know, I recommend it to anybody, whether you like mushrooms or not. Yeah, yeah, these, these are um, also ways for us to uh, to d d dive deeper into things like deep deep time because you realize that mushrooms have been around for such a long time um, evolving on the planet and we can learn so much um, from how to best uh, co-create with ignore them. it just because they're underground you know we ignore what we can't see so that's since most of it's one. happening yeah. out of sight it's easy to forget that that's happening you know I love these reimagining education opportunities and, and workshops and classes that are hands-on that are experiential I love them so much and I love how you use the words um, cooking is a technology for sharing love I think it is a great it one. is uh, that's a very powerful one is uh, if what's her name Samin Nasrat the uh, a woman who wrote uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat, she talks a lot about this stuff too. You know, it's like our connection with our food is very emotional. And um, I think it's a really powerful place to start with people um, if you want to kind of touch them in a way that will make them want to, because it's, it's great. You know, when I teach somebody how to make a pasta dish or something, it's very simple. But then they can go and share that with someone else. Like, I always want to make sure that when you leave my class, you're very confident about being able to do at least this one thing and being able to reproduce that. So I make everybody in my class, like, do it without me telling them what to do yeah. at the end of the class. And everybody, like, your graduation is that you do it from the beginning to the end yeah. after the whole class. And then yeah. you get to eat your little portion. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's great. You know, doing it is really, is really special for people. And then, um, all right, so what is the future of um, reimagining education, um, these experiences? We have an, the, the short video of the pipetting. Yeah. yeah, so let's show, explain this. So um, as part of our program, so I want to make my classes super, you know, um, I want everyone to participate if they want to. So um, a lot of the classes that I do are free and open to the public. Um, but that's not always good for everybody. I mean, we're kind of, you know, if you can afford to live in the Bay Area, you're probably least likely to need, um, you know, our help, right? I think that educators like myself and the programs that we're developing are really important for people outside of the Bay Area because people here have already have a lot of resources. So we're using this, which is an, um, an OpenTrons 2. It's a liquid handling robot. So if you have to do a lot of like DNA analysis or something, you have to pipette a lot of tiny amounts of liquid very accurately into a lot of different little wells. So this thing will do it automatically for you. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing if you want to hijack it to do real science or if you want to use it for its intended purpose. Um, but we kind of want to hijack it to do something a little bit fun. So we have programmed this <clears throat> to just add uh, liquid in a form that will give you a little you know, artistic picture or something. So this was a mm -hmm. test that we did just to make sure that it works. But we're going to basically take these 96 wells on this plate 
and we're just going to shrink it way down so we get like a you know whatever a, a thousand but it's not quite a thousand it's like a thousand by 600 or something um, and it's going to fit on a well plate that's about that size that's going to have auger on it and then that little stylus is going to go and suck up different aqueous solutions of bacteria that we have engineered to express different colors so in this case we're using dyed just water with some food dye in it um, but in the future we'll be using something that looks kind of a little cloudy but it doesn't necessarily have any color in it and when we grow when we stick it out on the growth medium it'll start growing mm -hmm. and it will express those colors as they come out so you can go in there and just create an art piece by clicking on the different pixels and selecting the different colors that will correspond to the different types of bacteria and then we're going to get a little a little artistic vision so this is obviously a very like you know chunky monochromatic version of what I hope people do which is create some really beautiful pieces of art um, I think there was one example on my website that has some of the uh, mushrooms that people were doing but basically we give them a little petri dish and a little watercolor paintbrush and they dip it into a little aqueous solution of bacteria and then they make a little design and then what grows and then when it's done it's like invisible ink you can't see anything and it mm. grows and expresses the colors over time mm. and it mostly stays where you put it but it will kind of grow a little bit out so you can actually see in this one those different colors there as dark as they are actually living bacteria that are expressing these different colors so we made a little palette so you could see what the colors would look like after they grew. And then these are the different little um, aqueous solutions. And so you can take that and, mm -hmm. and paint it out. And it's a really great way. We did this with uh, San Francisco Art Institute. And yeah. a bunch of professional artists came in. So and cool, they yeah. did a whole bunch of really cool. You can see all these pictures on uh, counterculturelabs.org. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a really inspiring thing. It's a new opportunity to get people. I mean, nobody talks about microbiology and it's a really important technology that's starting totally. to affect all of our lives. It's in our food, it's in our medicines, it's in our class. Well, it's not in our classrooms, which is the big problem. And so people are kind of hearing about this stuff and, you know, the opioid crisis and new drugs and, you know, cancer things. And it's just like nobody has any tools to evaluate whether it sounds like BS or if it could be something concerning I have to learn about. So we want to give people the opportunity to learn about this stuff, but we don't want to scare them by giving them something super complicated or something they don't really understand. I mean, a lot of people come to these things and they're like, oh, it's a biohacking event. Oh, I pressed a thing and I don't really get it. But if you make your own art, not only is it kind of fun, you get to see what happens, you get to, you want to think about it a little bit, but then you want to show your friends. So it's that community thing I was talking about, you know? It's not only that I just did a thing and I'm like, meh, I did a thing that I'm proud of and now I want to share that knowledge with other people. Yep. Um, so the, um, there's a lot of really cool, I mean, kids are great about that, but we do a program at, um, well, the now defunct Maker Fair, where we could extract people's DNA from their spit. So they'll spit in a little vial, yeah, yeah. and then we put a little, you know, stuff in there, and it's easy stuff. It's like hand soap and meat tenderizer and salt, and then you put isopropyl alcohol in there, and DNA is not very sol soluble in, in uh, isopropyl alcohol, so it precipitates out as these big stringy things. And then kids want to take the vials home. And I'm like, that's gross. But, you know, it's something that they're proud of, yeah. that they made, that they can reproduce, you know. And so stuff like that's really important. And that's one of the reasons I like working with food and mushrooms is like, you know, the stuff that's, that's, that has that potential for immediate fascination but is also really approachable and cheap. Um, so, you know, we want to open up stuff like this for people uh, over the internet. So you just log into a browser, you make a design, and boom, it can pipette out all the different types of bacteria and give you your own art piece. And you can actually enter the American Society of Microbiology's Auger Art Contest through nice. our lab. Yeah. And last year was the only time that you could do it not as a microbiologist that works in a microbiology lab because we opened up our community lab to let people do that. But now we're going to be able to open up so that anybody in the world that signs into this website can do it. It, which I think is a really powerful engagement tool and it's going to let us, you know, I don't think yes. this is going to change the world necessarily, but I think it's a great example of the type of educational engagement that we can do that will have an impact, you know, because yeah, it's so effects. much more. Yeah, but it's yeah. more than just the one thing, right? It's like, it's something artistic. It's something shareable, you know, it's like why I like to teach people how to cook because they can immediately take that and then like touch another person with that. It's not just enough to be really passionate about something by yourself. I mean, going back to the meat thing, I had this conversation with this other guy who is like railing on me for using, I mean, we use wild hunted pigs in my, in my butchering classes, but 
you know, when I'm doing like a cooking class or something like that, I can't always get like some pasture raised lamb or something to work with. Sometimes I got to go to the supermarket. And he's like, well, you can't do that. And I was like, dude, if you have the ability to eat this stuff, that's great. But that's not going to save the world. And it's not going to give, you know, I'm a really knowledgeable, like I have friends in the food business. And if I can't get that stuff on an easy level, what's the hope that anybody else is going to be able to do that? So you can't just rail against what other people are doing, which is just trying to live their lives and tell them they're being part of the problem because they're not doing this completely impossible, unsustainable thing. And that's where government comes in. It's like we have to make choices that, you know, if everybody gets on board, it makes a lot of sense, but nobody can do individually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, well, let's, let's just, let's Start just, money let's, let's follow, let's follow one of the thoughts there, which is like you're giving me this vision about what it could look like where communities around the world are starting to uh, evolve uh, more uh, reimagining education programs. Like we had the meetup culture slowly um, uh, take back its, its, its place. I mean, looking back at these villages and looking back at the tribes, looking back at us being able to pass down really good uh, lessons from the elders in our, in our, or in our groups and really let the children fi find their purposes, connect to nature. Um, it does seem like the, 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 fu fu the future is to be able to have things like technology help us identify um, in, uh, in very quickly the things that follow our purpose in the communities that are around us so we can go and immerse ourselves in them, get hands-on experiences with them. And that, I love that. Everything from kids to adults to older um, people even being able to do that. And we should allow people to have dignity in the things that they are passionate about. And feel like so many times people are like, oh, if you didn't have a college education, then it, you know, your opinion is worthless. Or if you don't have this certain kind of training. And that's just robbing people of the ability to feel like they are like a real participant in the things that they're doing. If you're waking up and doing something every day, you know, after about a few years, you're an expert. Whether or not anybody told you that you are, or you got a piece of paper, or you went to a certain school. So, you know, I really want to give people permission to follow your passions and do the stuff that you love, and know that simply doing the stuff that you love is a pathway to becoming an expert. And, you know, there's some work we need to do in our society to try to like detach someone who has a lot of experience from someone who's just gone to school because I mean yeah. it cuts both ways. It's nice to have a lot of degrees and stuff like that, but doesn't always help inform how you're supposed to do your life, you know. It's a very specific question in many cases. So a lot of people that's not appropriate for and I think we should give people the dignity to follow whatever their real path is in life and not expect them to have to jump through these hoops that maybe don't make sense for them. Yep, yep. And okay, let's do the two quick simulation questions on the way out. First is, do you think we're in a simulation? <laughs> oh, is that? <laughs> that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the, uh, in the, the Kantian version, I guess, I mean, how would we know? I think, um, I think it's useful to think about it in terms of it being a simulation and the fact that we have a lot of power over our experience in the world and, um, <laughs> there's a there's a kind of thing so like I started the business that I'm doing now that I really love out of you know and I used to say it was like a fake it till you make it kind of thing um, but I never really faked it for anybody I was always really clear to say you know this is the stuff this is what I know you know these are the limits of my of my knowledge and you know I'm having an experience here where I I see that everybody else has a, a unique experience and if you have something to bring to this table I want you to know that there's a space for that here. It's not just me giving you knowledge. Like this is a space we're creating so that we can all share knowledge. And um, I've found that if you're really clear with people about where your education ends, you end up learning a lot. And um, I haven't really felt like I've had to fake anything necessarily. I'm really just kind of taking the things that I'm learning and regurgitating it in a way that, um, that I think people really enjoy. And I think that that's important, you know, bringing joy and play yeah. and kind of just pleasure back into this process of learning and self-improvement. You know, it doesn't always have to be work. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's it's useful to kind of choose your passion and like you know find the things that don't feel so much like work, and trying to use that as a guide. Totally. to finding you know what's important so you know if you want to think about it being a simulation or something like that like think about it as a game you know like mm -hmm. start start making choices that you know like aim high level up your, <laughs> level up your character and then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world mm. uh, you should have had me prepare for this um, I I get a real love out of uh, gardening. I think that, um, you know, not everybody's going to grow all their food. We're probably all going to be part of the industrial food system. But if you can have a little tiny plot of land, I don't care if it's a little like box outside of your window or, you know, growing vegetables in your front yard or something like that. Um, it's a pretty beautiful experience to like grow a piece of food and like bring it inside and eat it. Yeah. It's uh it's a really cool experience, even when it's bad. Like I was growing these beets and I grew them too dry and they just really concentrated the tannins. And so I like, wow, I'm gonna thin slice these and put them in a salad. And I had like itchy throat for a day. But I was also like, <laughs> I learned something about <laughs> growing beets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, I love that stuff. You know, just watching stuff grow and kind of being a steward of things as they grow is something I find really beautiful, so. Yes. Do that with plants, do that with minds. With minds, I was gonna say that too <laughs> at the very end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Be a good steward of minds growing, like plants growing. Dude. Like, be a good steward of earth, yeah. Mario, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it went very quickly. education, yeah. Yeah, it's a great episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. This was it. a great experience. Thanks I'm for having me out. Glad, glad you think so. I had a blast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Go and share more content like this about reimagining education, about having these little workshops in our communities, about going out and connecting to nature and ourselves more. Let's go and share that more with our communities, friends, families, coworkers, people online on social media, get talking about it. And check out the links in the bio below. Again, that's mariogabbiati.com, thecounterculturelabs.org, and circuitlaunch.com. Yeah, if anybody's interested in taking in my classes or learning how to set up um, a makerspace or a workshop situation in their own hometown, I do a lot of consulting with that, and I'd love to help anybody set up if, um, that's, if that's what you'd like to do. I'd like to help set people up so that they can take my model and open it up in new places, because I can't be everywhere at once. So I'd really love to um, connect with people that want to do this in their own hometown. I love that. A bunch of uh, trained uh, Marios uh, yeah, run, uh, running around in their own <laughs> communities, make, bringing people out to, to, to beekeep, bringing people out to mushroom hunt. I love that. Yeah. That's a huge... Let's take what's special about the Bay Area and make it everywhere. I mean, I think community... Yeah. Nobody's going to church anymore. We got to find something. So, <laughs> <laughs> deep connection to nature again, um, and yeah, and that's great, Mario. That's a great recommendation for everyone as an action item. And also, shout out to Ron Vogus for producing and directing. Thank you very Thank you, Ron. much, Ron. And go and build the future, everyone. Support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in. Support simulation. Our links are below. Cryptocurrency, PayPal, Patreon. All of those links are below. Design cool merch and get paid for it as well. And go and build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Peace.